Good morning, church. You may be seated. Today, today we conclude our 50 days in Genesis. We've actually spent uh, nine Sundays. So we did an intro where we looked at Luke, and then this is our eighth Sunday looking at Genesis. And I just pray that you guys um, have been reading with us, just one chapter a day, that you guys have been reading with the church and following through uh, the book of Genesis. I pray that during this time, um, you grew closer to God, and maybe God revealed something new about him to you. Um, I pray that as we looked at the people and the events in Genesis, that you didn't just say, oh, that's nice, but it drew you closer to Jesus during this time. As we've gone through Genesis, Jesus, something we've been constantly reminded of, is what Jesus told the men on the road to Emmaus. He said all of the scriptures, right, beginning with the prophets and Moses, and we know that Moses wrote Genesis, but he said all of them point to me. All of them concern me. The book, the Bible, is about Jesus. And I hope you've seen that as we've gone through this. This last several weeks, I had to write these down. We, we saw the hope of Jesus in creation, and it was in the beginning that we got a glimpse of the end. We saw the security of Jesus in the ark. We saw the better way in Jesus, just as Abraham chose Melchizedek, right? As pastor and podcaster Trey Van Camp says, right? I think we've got a picture of him, right? He just says Jesus is better. If you look, he's got a shirt, the background, everything. Jesus is better, and we learn that when we look at Genesis, right? We saw that Jesus is our Jacob's ladder who gives us access to God, who allows us in the presence of, of God. We saw that Jesus can still be glorified through our dysfunctional families and our own dysfunctional lives. And we see that Jesus is the blessing that comes through suffering. Genesis points us to a pretty good and complete picture of Jesus if we start looking through it. And most of the time we know Right? We know that Jesus is our hope. We know that Jesus is better. We know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody gets to the Father except through him. Those are things as professing Christians we will say, I firmly believe this. This is something I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt, except for the times we don't. Right? Except for the times that we struggle with life. Right? Sometimes we get isolated. Sometimes we get outside of our Christian community. And sometimes that doubt starts to creep into our minds. And we start to ask ourselves, how do we know that Jesus is all of these things? Right? Do I really believe what I really believe I believe I say is true? Is Jesus our hope? Is Jesus our rock? Is Jesus our savior? And even if we answer yes to all those questions, sometimes we stop and think, okay, well, is it worth it? Because sometimes following Jesus is really hard, right? In practice, it's, it's easy in theory. You just read the Bible and do what it says. But when we try to actually live that way, it is difficult. It is hard. And just, just for a moment, just be real. You don't have to be real with me. Just be real with yourselves. Do you ever struggle with those things? Do you ever struggle with questions and doubts? Because I know that sometimes I do. And I'll be really honest with you, I don't want to rain on your parade, but nobody has a perfect faith, so I know that all of you do too, too. Right? So, sorry if I just busted your bubble, but that's the truth. And every time we do something not in line with Scripture or with Jesus' teaching, it's because we doubt what he tells us is best for us. Right? We think, oh, I got a better way. 
right? We think we are the exception to God's all-knowing, right? He knows everything except for what's best for me, and I know what that is. The truth is is that in some way, at some time, we all struggle with doubt, right? We all start to second-guess who is Jesus, and what did Jesus do, and what is Jesus going to do? And there's a passage of scripture I just want to point you to in 2 Corinthians. It's 2 Corinthians 1.20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. It's talking about Jesus. So whenever we have doubts and we look at Jesus's promise, or God's promises and we say, I don't know, all we have to do is look to Jesus. And the answer is yes. In Genesis chapter 9, we see these doubts addressed in Jesus through a prophetic blessing of Jacob to one of his sons. So go ahead and open up your Bibles. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 29 today. We're just going to be looking at a few verses in there. We're going to actually pick up in the middle of Jacob, right? His name was changed to Israel, of Jacob's blessing to his children. And sometimes blessing may not be the right word, especially if you're Reuben or Simeon or Levi, you probably would not call this a blessing. He didn't have a lot of good things to say about them. But Jacob is giving these, we'll call them um, prophetic divine pronouncements. And he's giving them over his children. And if we look at chapter 48, we actually see Jacob start to give these, uh, these pronouncements over his grandchildren. Right? He starts with the children of Joseph. He starts with uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. And Manasseh is the older one, and Ephraim is the younger one. And Jacob gives the youngest grandson the blessing of the oldest son. And Jacob, when we look through this, we start to question what Jacob is doing. And then in 49, we see that Jacob actually begins to address his own children. 49 verse 1, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you What shall happen to you in the days to come? Jacob's words here, they're more than just mere wishes. These are predictive elements in each of them. For they concern the the days that are to come. Right, that is in the distant future. Sometimes we see this phrase translated in the later days. These later days, these days to come, it's an expression for future beyond the horizon. It's not today or later today or tomorrow, but it's like in several generations, in a long time from now, in in a century from now, these things are going to happen. But we also know that that term, most of the time in the Old Testament, it's referring to the days of the Messiah, right? The later days, it's an expression used to talk about the days of the Messiah. If you look at Hosea chapter 3, Hosea says this, afterward the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and they shall come in fear of the Lord and to his goodness in the later days. And we know that Hosea, when he says that, he is specifically talking about the days of the Messiah, the time that is to come. So as we go through these pronouncements, right, one we can read them, one we have the entire package of scripture all the way from Genesis to Revelation, we also have hindsight. We have about 4,000 years of hindsight. And so hindsight being 2020, we can start to understand some of these prophecies a little bit better. And as we look at this, we know that Jacob, some of his prophecies are 1,000 years out. And does anybody know what happened 1,000 years after he gave these prophecies? David became king. 
And then we also know that most of this deals with 2,000 years ago, or 2,000 years after, which is when Jesus came on the scene, the later days, the days of the Messiah. And so each of these pronouncements that Jacob gives to his children, right, he talks about people groups. He talks about nations. And as we go through scripture, we will go through and hear about many of these people groups and many of these nations that he's talking about. And during these pronouncements, he even talks about wars, these great fights that are going to happen between the tribes of his children. They're going to fight. It's going to be a costly battle. People will die. It's going to be a time of tension. And it is so bad that Jacob actually stops in the middle of his, his pronouncements, in the middle of his blessings. And in verse 18, he, says, he, he pauses and pleads with God. And he says, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. And as he's telling his children, like, oh, you guys are going to fight. Oh, you guys are going to have children that are fighting. He just stops and begs God to intervene and for his salvation to take hold. And each of the blessings of each of Jacob's kids, they could be a, a, a sermon in themselves. And there's so much to learn in each of these blessings. But right now we are focusing on Jesus and Genesis. And there's one of these blessings that solely focuses on Jesus. Solely points us towards Jesus. And this prophecy is made 2,000 years before the birth of Jesus. And that's going to be the blessing of Judah. And that's what we're going to look at today. And Judah receives a long and positive blessing from his father. He actually has the second longest blessing. Joseph had the longest one. But this is a positive blessing that we see that Joseph has. And it's filled with statements that point us to the coming Messiah and his kingship. And a kingdom that will last for all of eternity. So we're going to spend the rest of this morning just looking at this blessing that assures us of the sovereignty and the everlasting kingdom of Jesus. So I'm going to begin reading. I'm going to begin in verse, or excuse me, chapter 49, verse 8. And I'm going to read the entire blessing through. The scripture says this. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people's. Binding his fowl to the vine and his donkey colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. And as we read this scripture, there are five prophetic statements, five prophetic truths that point us to Jesus and actually answer all of our doubts and questions about will Jesus win, right? Will he reign, and if so, how long will he reign? Will it be forever? And if it is all true, is it worth it to follow Jesus? These pronouncements are presented using this poetic imagery and this language, right? They braid common themes together back and forth, and they have these word plays and I'm going to be really honest with you. Sometimes it makes it really hard to understand. Right? As they're going back and forth, it's, it's beautiful poetry. 
and some of you are going to freak out because we're not going to go through this systematically. We're not going to go through this in this logical argument. And if that is you, just set your pencil down. Don't even try to take notes. Just set your pencil down and just listen, right, and just see if we can identify what those themes are. I am somebody who likes the notes. I like to go point A, point B, point C, conclusion, uh, three points, I'm good, and be done with it. But here's the problem, is that then I would miss out on an important part of our creator, right? I would miss out on a beautiful part of our God, and I would miss out on some of his character if we didn't see this poetry and this imagery and this beautiful picture that is painted of God's character. And as I go through this passage, I don't want to unbraid these sections of scripture. But I want to make sure that you're able to identify the individual chords that are woven together throughout scripture. And I'm going to give those to you right now so you don't have to be guessing because I know there's some type A people that are like trying to guess what those chords are. Here they are, right? The king will come from the tribe of Judah He will be a victorious king. His kingdom will have no end. His kingdom will be everlasting. His kingdom will be eternal. His kingdom will be forever. And then the fourth one is his kingdom will have no boundaries. No land boundaries. No people boundaries. He will be king over everyone. Every nation. And not nations with boundaries but people groups. Every single person will be subject to the king. And as we bounce around, others of you are going to be just fine. You're not going to be stressed out. You're not going to be jonesing for the next answer. You'll just be good. Right? And that's, that's okay. But let's go ahead and let's get started here. Right? The, the first statement is the king will come from the tribe of Judah. Right in verse 8, it says, your, your brothers shall praise you. And if we skip a little bit further, it says, your father's son shall bow down before you. This is an interesting statement that should actually make your hair stand up. You say, hey, something's not right here. Ever since chapter 37, right, the, the, the associated, the leadership, the royalty has been associated with one person, Joseph. But here he's talking to Judah. Right? You would expect that Jacob would be exalting Judah. Not to mention, in chapter 48, we just read that Jacob blessed Joseph's sons to take the lead. Gave Ephraim the, the head of the family. Made him the leader. He's given the leadership position. And as we go through history, we see that the dependents, right, the descendants, sorry, the descendants of Ephraim are actually the ones that are in leadership of the Israelites. But a thousand years after this pronouncement, there is a huge shift in the Israeli leadership. If you look at Psalm 78, right, this is a historical psalm. It's talking about how Israel is going up and down, up and down. It mostly focuses on when they're down. And it shows God's faithfulness even when Israel is not faithful. Right, they sin and they rebel against God over and over and over and over again. And God finally says, enough. And in verses 67 and 68, it reads this. He, referring to God, rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. And we see that a thousand years after Jacob gives this blessing, there's a shift in leadership. And we see that now the tribe of Judah comes to the leadership position. 
right? Due to Israel's constant rebellion, God installs a new king, a new man from the tribe of Judah. You've heard of this man. His name is King David. And he will rule in Jerusalem. So roughly a thousand years after Jacob's blessing, we see it come true. The greater kingdom of David was established. But listen, church, it doesn't stop with David. The word here for your brothers will praise you is seldom, if ever, used to describe humans. Right? There are two times that are up for debate, and it's still debating on if, on if that word is used to describe humans. One of them is Job, or is it only used to describe God? And so here in Genesis 49, there's already this hint of divine majesty connected with Judah. And if we keep reading in our Bibles, in the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, we see that the royal line of Judah goes through King David and culminates, right? The royal line ends with Jesus, our Christ. Jesus, who is called Christ, is the end of the Judah line, right? The greatest kingdom will fall under him. Jesus is the divine king that we speak of. And Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. Second, we see that the king will be victorious, In verse 8, between those two poetic lines describing the acceptance of Judah as the leading tribe of Israel, is a description of Judah's defeat of his enemies with his hands around their necks, and it's this portrait, this picture of triumph over those who threaten his people. The king is victorious, and we see this coming Messiah as a conquering king. He is powerful, and he is mighty, and he has his enemies in his hands. He has complete control of what is going on. And a few verses later in this, we see that Judah is referenced as a lion. And throughout the Old Testament, Yahweh, God, is portrayed as a lion. And we know that a lion is a symbol of strength and power. A lion is a a symbol of majesty and kingship. Most of you are familiar, you probably heard the title, the Lion of Judah. And this is who is referenced by John, right? The line of Judah, he's referencing this passage in Genesis. And in John's revelation, I wanna read this to you. In John's revelation, he mentions the lion of Judah. And if you remember, John sees this vision in, in heaven and he sees these sealed scrolls that are so sacred, nobody is worthy to open them. And John begins to cry because he wants the seals to be opened. It's the seals of life. And he's sitting there crying, And in walks the Lion of Judah. And the Lion of Judah takes the scrolls and John sees them. And he is the only one that is worthy to open those scrolls. And he takes the scrolls and a funny thing happens. He goes and he sits down at the the right hand of God. But then walks in a slain lamb. And he walks up to the lion and he takes the scrolls from his hands. And then I want you to listen to how John describes what happens. So the the lamb takes those scrolls. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. And every tribe and language, people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest 
to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Right? I just told you lion is the only one that is worthy, but no, 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 this lamb comes in, and he takes the scrolls. And in this imagery, in this picture, we see Jesus as the powerful lion and the slain, the, the slain lamb, the only one that is worthy of our praise. He is the powerful and, and majest, majestic king. And at the same time, he is the sacrificial lamb who was slain for you and for me. And as we see this picture, we see that God's hand was placed on the throat of his enemy as Jesus' hands were nailed to the cross. Right? And Jesus proclaimed his victory when he said, it is finished. It is done. As he gave his life up for you and for me. Paul tells us in, in Colossians, he says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your faith, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And he, talking about Jesus, listen to this, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to shame by triumphing over them in him. It was on the cross that Jesus defeated all the enemies. It was on the cross that we were set free. And then three days later, Jesus walked out of the grave as a victorious king. Right, the war was over. Jesus, the tribe from Judah, is victorious. Just as Jacob said, he and only he is the victorious king and the slain lamb, the only one who is worthy to receive our worship. Not only is Jesus victorious, he is the only one worthy of our worship. He is the only king worthy of our worship, just as Jacob pronounced 2,000 years before. Church, we can never doubt that Jesus is king. Right? Not Jesus will be king, not Jesus might be king. Jesus is king today. Jesus is victorious today. We don't have to sit and wait and see who wins. We don't have to guess. We don't have to see the, like we're watching in Europe, hey, is Russia or Ukraine going to win? I think it's going this way. I think We don't have any of those guesses to make. With certainty, we can say Jesus is king. With certainty, we can say Jesus is victorious. The next pronouncement that is made is that Jesus will rule forever. This king will rule forever. And we often point to the Davidic covenant that's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we, we use that prophecy to talk about Jesus' forever reign. It's here that God makes a covenant with David. And God says this in verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That's, that's a pretty good promise. Right? That things are going to happen and that Jesus will be king forever. But we can back up a thousand years before that when Jacob was talking to Judah. Right? And he says, your kingdom from your tribe will rule forever. Right? The scepter, the symbol of authority will not depart from you. You will have a kingdom forever. Right? And some say, well, no, no, this wasn't talking about Jesus. This prophecy was talking about David. But churches, we just saw the, the prophecy of this king doesn't really end with David. It begins with David. David is the start of this. David became the first king from the tribe of Judah, not the final king. David doesn't rule forever. We see Jesus become the final king. 
We see Jesus become the forever king from the tribe of Judah. This prophecy is talking about Jesus. So we know that Jesus will come from the tribe of Judah, the, the, the Messiah. We know that this king will be victorious. We know that his kingdom will last forever. The, the next pronouncement that I want to talk about is that Jesus will be king over all. To him shall be the obedience of the peoples, right? Not just the tribe, not just his dad's son's kids, but the peoples, the entire people. It's more than just his brothers. It's all of the Israelites bowing down to him. It's all of the nations being obedient and bringing tribute to him. And this actually sets the tone for the the expectation that we see in the New Testament. The expectation we see that God's blessing will come to the Gentiles through the ultimate king, through King Jesus, reigning and incorporating the Gentiles into his forever kingdom. That his kingdom will not just be for the Israelites. It will be for the nations. It will be for everybody. I want you to listen to what Paul says. Right? That he's writing this letter to Romans. And in his opening part of his letter, listen to what he says. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. There was not a limit. This was to go out to all of the nations. Paul is telling us, as as those who have tasted the grace of Jesus, that we are to to tell others, right? We are to tell others and to bring them into the kingdom, to share the the grace of God, to bring them into this kingdom. It doesn't matter what their ethnicity is, what their nationality is. None of that matters. All, right? All means everybody. It means from every single nation who by his grace practice obedience of the faith will be welcomed into the kingdom. Excuse me. <clears throat> but here's the beautiful part about what Paul wrote. Paul didn't make that up. Paul didn't think that was just a good idea so he would throw it in his book or his letter. He actually took that from Jesus. Right, church, please, please tell me this next verse that I I'm going to share with you is sounds familiar to you. In the last four years, I have preached more on this last verse than any other verse I've ever said. 28, Matthew 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And we know when we say nations, we know that word is ethne. It's not talking about political boundaries. It's talking about people group. It's talking about people that speak different languages. It's talking about a shared cultural experience between people. It's not defined by land boundaries. It's defined by cultures, and it includes everybody in the world. Jesus tells us to go and make disciples of them, of all of them. We live in Los Angeles, most of us. I talked to some visitors that aren't from Los Angeles, but you're in California, right? And in California, 
we can pretty much go to the grocery store and share the gospel with the entire world. Right? We don't have to look far. We can go and share it. The melting pot of the world is here in Los Angeles and San Francisco. Jesus says, go. You don't have to get on a boat or a plane. You just have to go and share Jesus. Go share him with your next door neighbor. Go share him in the marketplace. Go share him when you're walking dogs and you meet the fellow dog walkers with you. But the truth is, is sometimes we are hesitant to share that faith. Because we meet somebody and we say, oh, their background, their ethnicity, their culture. Man, they don't like Jesus. They hate Jesus. Right? At best, they're resistant towards Jesus. So I'm not going to share with them. That's not what Scripture tells us to do. It doesn't say, like, make disciples of all the nations except for. It says make disciples of all of the nations because you know what? His kingdom is over all. All means everyone and everywhere. Jesus is sovereign and he is king over all. Church, it's not just a a beautiful song or a cute verse. It's a promise from God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess I am God. Every tongue shall confess. Church, and this is the blessing to Judah that we see. The king will come from the tribe of Judah. He'll be victorious, and his kingdom will have no boundaries, no boundaries of time, no boundaries of people. It'll be for everybody. It'll be all the time. He will be sovereign over all for all time. God will be sovereign. And so, church, we have nothing to worry about and nothing to fear and nothing to doubt because Jesus is king and he's already won. He's already established his kingdom and he is reigning over all of his creation. But you see, we have a few more verses in this blessing. Right? We don't end here and it's in these final verses that we see this beautiful picture of the kingdom. In this final portion of this blessing, it confirms the messianic thrust of this section. Right? Judah will usher in an age of abundance and prosperity. If we read that passage, normally one would not tie their donkey to a valuable grapevine. Because what will your donkey do? He'll eat it. Right? Worse than that, he might just walk away and rip your vineyards, vineyards apart. However, when we read the scripture, this is a picture of such abundance that the loss of a valuable vineyard is insignificant. It doesn't matter. Moreover, the king will wash his clothes in the wine. In the blood of the grapes, he'll wash his clothes. I know that sounds strange, right? Purple's, I guess, a sign of of royalty. I don't know why you would wash them in wine. But we, once again, this is a picture that the expensive wine will be as common as water that the king and those in his kingdom can wash their filthy laundry in the most expensive of wines. The kingdom will be one of zero want. Our hearts will be full and every single one of our desires will be met. But that's not the beautiful part of the kingdom. That's not even the most beautiful part of the kingdom and church. If we're not careful, we will lose focus on what the most important part of the kingdom is. And I will confess to my brothers and sisters, I did this yesterday. 
I fell into this sin. I got distracted, and I was at a celebration of life, and I spoke of a godly woman that was going home where there is no more pain and there is no more suffering. And we celebrated that she's going to be reunited with her family and with her friends. I didn't mention anything about her splashing around in barrels of wine or washing her clothes in wine, but you get the point. And sometimes we get caught up in the things of God that we miss the true beauty of the kingdom. The beauty of the kingdom is not the kingdom. It's the king. Right? It is the king with the dark eyes and the teeth of milk. The, the king is the real beauty of the kingdom. That is what brings beauty to the kingdom. That is what gives beauty to the kingdom. It is this king that Genesis and all of Scripture points us to. It is this king that all of Scripture says, look at the beauty of this king. And church, as we've walked through Genesis together these last 50 days, I pray that you saw the beauty of Jesus through it all. Right? I, I pray that, it is, that you saw that it is King Jesus who gives us hope. That it is King Jesus who gives us peace. That it is King Jesus who comforts us. That it is King Jesus who saves us. It is King Jesus who is victorious and sovereign over all, all the time. It is in King Jesus that our fears are relieved and our doubt is erased. It is King Jesus who is the beauty throughout Scripture, beginning in Genesis and ending in Revelation. It is King Jesus who is the beauty in you, right? Beginning with your sins and ending with his righteousness. Church, there is no doubt, no need to doubt, no need to worry when you know the glory and the grace of King Jesus. Church, he is victorious. He is the king of all time and the king over all things. He is victorious, not will. This is past tense. He is victorious right now. And he is the king of all time, forever. And he is the king over everything. Church, that is beautiful. Right? That is the most beautiful thing that we could ever ask for. That is the thing that relieves our hearts. And church, we're going to close in prayer. And I just want to take this time as we pray that we reflect on the, the beauty of Christ in our own lives. And church, I want to encourage you as we are praying that you wrestle with that. Do you know the beauty of Christ? Have you experienced the beauty of Christ? Have you made a public profession to say, I want to follow Christ, that I want the beauty of Christ, that I want Christ, I don't want his things, I don't want his peace, I don't want his comfort, sure that stuff is nice, but more than anything else in this world, I want King Jesus. And if you've never, if you've never made that, that expression of faith, if you're sitting in your chair saying, yeah, yeah, I want that, but I don't know how to do that. Right, when the worship team comes up and plays, I'll be up front we have deacons scattered throughout um, the worship center and they can just go by the walls and if there's somebody you need to talk to and you want to ask about that, I want to encourage you to do that. I want to encourage you to give your life to Jesus and experience the beauty of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Dear Heavenly Father, we just, we just stand amazed. And so many times, Lord, we get distracted by all these other things and none of it compares with your beauty. None of it compares with who you are. 
None of it compares with what you've done. None of it compares with what you will do. None of it compares with you. Lord, we just pray that our hearts would be turned towards you, that our focus would be towards you, that we would not be distracted by anything else, and we would just set our gaze on you and move towards you. Lord, we pray that our hearts would be filled, our hearts would be on fire. Lord, we pray that we would have the courage to go and share the good news of Jesus with our next-door neighbors and with our community. Lord, we say that we love people like you love people, but do we show that? Do we try to comfort people, or do we try to give people life that is found in Jesus? Lord, we are so grateful for you and for the cross. We're so grateful that you loved us enough to send your son to die for us even when we were still sinners. We're so grateful for the righteousness that he gives to us. And Lord, we pray we'd be a light to our community. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And we ask all these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. And all of God's people said, amen.